Welcome to the Revival Ready podcast. This is a ministry of Edinburgh Elam Church. For more information, please visit www.edinburghelam.com. Okay, we're on. Good evening, all. Nice to see you all. Good to see a healthy crowd in tonight. And uh, uh, this is, uh, for me, very exciting to get the opportunity to share with you uh, about, uh, well, about Jesus, really, I suppose, uh, the life and work of uh, Jesus. And if uh, you've been listening at all to anything that Jazeel or Gordon has said about Revival Ready, uh, you'll know that this course this time is really uh, with an apologetics edge, okay? It's to help us uh, share our faith, it's to help us uh, uh, express what we know to be true to those that we meet, whether our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, uh, family, whatever it is. And um, uh, a lot of you know that I'm interested in apologetics, so, so th- this is great for me to be thinking that way anyway about uh, the life and work of Jesus. But for me, funnily enough, it's the first time I've spoken apologetically about Jesus. I've, I've usually talked about dinosaurs or you know, the beginnings, origins, things like that. And yet we all know that Jesus is central, isn't he? Jesus is core. If we don't get this right, if we're not giving people Jesus, we can talk about all the other stuff all we want. And this is it, isn't it? It's about Jesus, really. So uh, tonight's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. Um, The the good news is, uh, well, there isn't any. Okay. (laughs) The bad news is I've got 50 slides. Okay, so there is good news. I ended up ditching my notes because I'm just going to work off the slides because I just realized there is so much material about Jesus that we need to talk about. There is so much. And pastors like Jaziel and um, Arwen know this because they speak about Jesus all the time to all of us. But, but the evidence for Jesus, the evidence for his life, the evidence for his work is so powerful and so strong that we, we take conferences. That, that's why people take conferences Uh, to share about it. So we've got two options tonight. We can either do the notes and do a conference tonight, or we can do the hour that Jazeel says we've got, okay, and ditch the notes. So we're going to ditch the notes. We're just going to go through the slides. I'll point stuff out as we go, and uh, we'll enjoy the next uh, hour together. Now, if if you're slightly worried, you know, if you kind of think, well, look, I'm uh, I'm not very technical. I'm not into apologetics particularly or whatever. It's okay. I've only got two requirements of you tonight, okay? One is that you can count to 25, Okay, so hands down if you can count to 25. Okay, that's good. That's just about everybody here. Good. Uh, If you can count to 25, just sit next to somebody that can and they'll keep you right, okay? And the second is that you know a little bit of Scottish history. I said Scottish history, okay? You know a little bit of Scottish history, okay? If if you've got those two things, you'll be fine tonight, okay? That's all you need, okay, for this evening, okay? So uh, without further ado, let's, let's start. So the first slide here is, is a bit of an introduction. The first few slides are really just to introduce, uh, I suppose, apologetics, uh, because that's the angle that we're using for this course, okay? So, so when we're talking about apologetics, we have to think partly about the person that we're sharing with, okay? It's fine that we know what we believe, but we're going to be speaking to people that we, we don't know where they're coming from sometimes. You know, we, we're, we're in the turning, we're meeting people in the street, we're doing all kinds of things. Me and my workplace, I'm meeting people. So, so, so we have to think about that. And so, so it helps us just to know our audience, I guess. And so, you know, when we're sharing, if, if, if somebody just says, I'm not interested, well, well, don't be surprised. It's not a slight on you. It's not a slight on anything else. About half the people that we will meet will just say, I just, 
I don't care. I'm not interested. It's not for me, okay? So, so was it Augustine that said, just use words if you must then, okay? Preach the gospel by your life, okay? Just be you around them, okay? So if you get somebody like that, don't, don't necessarily try and ram it all down them. Just, just speak Jesus through your life, okay? Off the other 50%, we've kind of got groups like this, okay? So about 15% will be people that you would call an evidential doubter, okay? You give them the evidence and they say, oh, that makes sense, that's great, and they'll embrace it, okay? But that's still quite a small number. I could only find one study on it, and that's, that's the figure, but it's, it seems about right to me. About 15% of people are probably like that. Um, and then the other 85% are probably falling into one of these categories, which can overlap sometimes. Yeah. Emotional doubters uh, are just confirmed. That they're just, they don't want to believe, basically. They're confirmed doubters, okay? So emotional doubters might be somebody... Um, they used to go to church, they had a bad experience, pastor let them down, uh, friend let them down, you know, something like that. Just, you know, some family member who was a Christian was too zealous in their, whatever. And they've just decided they just want to withdraw from it. And so they've used that as their reason. Could be sin, actually. You know, they just don't want to confront their issue with God anymore, so they withdraw. And so it's been easier for them just to say, I don't believe. It's just the easiest way for them to, to deal with things. And that can lead to confirmed doubt. I mean, if people sit like that long enough, they can go that way. But confirmed doubters are just people who just don't want to believe, you know. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I feel like talking about football tonight. I wonder why that is, Sydney. For the first time this season, I feel like talking about football. And I'm going to do it right now, okay? So I'm going to give you an example of a confirmed doubter. Okay, so Sydney, Sydney Rennie is a confirmed doubter. Because I'll have a conversation with Sydney. I'm a Hearts fan. He's a Hibs fan, okay? And, and I'll, I'll say to Sydney, Sydney, you know fine the evidence says that Hearts are a better team than Hibs, okay? You know fine we've won more games at Tyne Castle, we've won more games at Easter Road, we've won more games at Hamden, we've scored more goals, we've conceded less goals. I can give him all the evidence in the world, and I know what Sid's going to say to me. He said, I don't care. Hibs are still the better. So that's what he's going to say, isn't he? Yeah, okay? So I'm going to use you a few times tonight, Sid, Okay. <laughs> So, so that's a confirmed doubter, okay? You can give them all the evidence in the world, okay? And they're still going to feel the same way because that's, what they, that's their worldview now, okay? That's what they believe. So I, I'm telling you this actually to encourage you, actually, okay? Because sometimes when we're speaking to people, we can think, oh, you know, not many people are responding. It's, it's okay. This, fi this 15% off the 50% is your target, really, okay? And the rest we pray for, we love, we just care for them. And, and pray especially for this this group here and emotional doubters I've met more of them than any other category yes, yes. I've met more of them okay people hurt by church or yeah. you know that that's just the way it's yeah. been I've met one emotional doubter who used to go to church his family were missionaries and he now runs atheist clubs he runs them he set them up and he runs them and and he agreed to meet me we spent a lot of time talking over coffee and stuff like that and at the end of the time uh, when we just agreed we'd probably run the course of meeting up um, I just said to him, you've never said why you really don't believe in God. We've spoken about all these issues and you've never really said. And you, you know what he said to me? Th th this just hit me so hard. He says, it's the way Christians treat each other. Yeah. Okay? It's the way Christians yeah. treat. It, it wasn't to do with God, actually. Yeah. It was to do with us. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that something? So, so we need to pray for people in that boat. Okay? That's our responsibility there. Okay? So that's an introduction. Okay? We've got doubters. We're going to have doubters. And we need to think about the people that we're going to meet. Uh, okay, uh, Scottish history. Okay, this is still part of the introduction. This isn't to do with Jesus. Okay, so this is still part of the introduction. Um, who's this character here? Sir William Wallace, if you don't mind. Okay, okay. 
William Wallace, okay. Okay, William Wallace. Now, this isn't an advert for Scottish independence, the Scottish notion. It's nothing like that, okay? This is just to see how hard it is to get history right, okay? So here's William Wallace. Does anybody know roughly when he was around, approximately? Yeah. 13th century. Well, yeah, okay. He died in 1305, okay? He died in 1305, okay? So, so, so who was William Wallace's father? Okay, but we'll have to pass that by, actually. They don't, they don't actually know. It was Mr. Wallace. We know that, and that's it. Okay. Okay, who, who was his wife? Mrs. Wallace. Well, yeah, okay. So, so we're going to rewrite history tonight, okay? They, they don't know if he was married, okay? So did he have children? Well, we don't, we don't know. They don't, they don't know if he had children or not. Uh, hopefully not, actually, if he didn't have a Mrs. Wallace. Okay. Um, uh, what football team did he support, Sydney? <laughs> oh, well, okay. Uh, where was he from? Where was he born? No, no. Okay, do you see where I'm going? We don't know. We don't know. And yet, he's our national hero, isn't he? Here's this William Wallace, our national hero. And actually, we know that he fought in the Battle of Stirling. He fought in the Battle of Falkirk. It was 1-1 after those. And he lost in penalties, didn't he? Because he got, you know. So, so... So we know he died in 1305, okay? So we've got very little information. In fact, historians say the best information we've got about William Wallace was 180 years after the event when a guy called Blind Harry, who was a court jester, wrote about him. And it's all discredited. Everything he wrote was a load of nonsense. But that, that's the best we've got about the life of William Wallace. And we're only going back 700 years here. 700 years, okay? Our national hero, okay? We know virtually nothing about him, apart from the fact he had a good fight with English and he died. Okay, there we go. Right, another one for you. Who's that? Mary Stewart. Mary Stewart, okay? Our most famous queen, okay? Um, how long was she on the throne for? Roughly? Well, she was in exile, wasn't she, a lot of the time? Okay, but she, she, she was our queen for 25 years. Okay, she was our queen for 25 years. How many pictures, drawings, paintings do we have of her while she was on the throne? Well, actually, there is one, okay? That's it. 25 years, we've got one drawing of her, okay, one. Um, how do all the people afterwards who drew her, who haven't seen the painting, know what she looked like? Okay, and, and here we're going, but I mean, I'm a bit sketchy with my history now, but did he not, she not die about 1587 or something like that? So now we're only 400 years away. With Wallace, we were about 700. We're only about 400 years away now, and we've got one painting of our most famous queen while she was on the throne. It's quite something, isn't it? You'd think historically we would know a bit more. Okay. Right, one more. Our second most famous painting in Scotland. What's our most famous one? The Monarch of the Glen, of course. Edward. Okay, who's this? Anybody know the guy's name that's skating? This is the skating minister, right? The skating minister. Okay. Any ideas? No, Robert Walker. Okay, Robert Walker was his name. Uh, well... We think Robert Walker was his name. Okay, so let's make it easier. Who painted him? Any ideas? No. Okay, right, okay. I thought you would all know this. <laughs> okay, you're all fired. I asked if you were good at Scottish history. <laughs> okay. This, Duddingston Lock. Duddingston Lock. Good, good. Okay, okay. Bill gets another muffin. Okay. <laughs> Duddingston Lock. And, and this was only painted about, what, 1800? So we're only going back about 200 years now. Okay. And, and the theory for a long time was it was Sir Henry Rayburn, Henry Rayburn that painted him, okay? He was a minister as well, okay? Um, 
Now, I want you to know how far I've gone to check my facts, okay? I went to the National Galleries of Scotland on the mound to look at this painting. Eileen was with me, okay? And I read the inscription I've got on my phone, okay? And it says, actually, we're not sure it was Henry Rayburn that painted this. We think it might have been a French artist who was in Scotland. Okay, this is our second most famous painting in our country, uh, only done 200 years ago. And we're not entirely sure that that's who he says he is. Okay, Bill's probably right. It's probably Duddingston Locke. Okay, and we're not sure who painted him. Okay, okay. history's a funny thing, isn't it? It's really difficult to get history on your side, actually, if you want to support something. Okay, so we're now going to start talking about Jesus. Okay, so um, when when people who look into the life of Jesus and look for historical evidence for him, it really is a case of piecing things together. Okay, they look, so so I'm giving you some names here. I'll just go through them briefly to give you some ideas of who these people are just now, but. But scholars don't just rely on what they're reading, okay? They're relying on historians and uh, people who date scripts, manuscripts, critical, critical text readers, people like that, archaeologists, to feed the information in in order for them to interpret it properly for us, okay? And, and so New Testament scholars aren't necessarily Christians. They're people who study the New Testament. Okay, so I've given you four names here. I, I think most of you will, will have heard of this one. N.T. Wright, okay? And you've probably heard of him because he's evangelical. He is a Christian. He's probably like us, mainly, largely, okay? So if N.T. Wright says something, we would probably agree with it, okay? But, but he's a scholar. That's what he is. He's studied New Testament scholarship, okay? Uh, Richard Bockham. So uh, now, Richard Bockham's a professor at Cambridge. Again, he, he's definitely a Christian. He would probably be very like us, Again, so I've put conservative. This isn't political, okay? Okay, it's not who he votes for, okay? This is just to help us understand his kind of thought process, the way he interprets things. He would think like us. N.T. Wright definitely thinks like us. So, so we have some Christian scholars, uh, but not necessarily so. So on the other side here, John, uh, John Dominic Crossan, anybody heard of him? Anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? Jesus Seminar, okay. Very, very liberal. I mean, extremely liberal. They... they, they so to give an example, the red letter words of Jesus, they would say 15% of them they would accept and the rest they would ditch, okay? That's how they interpret the New Testament, okay? But they're scholars, they're, inter they're looking at the New Testament, they're interpreting it and saying this is what we believe it means, okay? So John Dominic Crossan, Jesus Seminar, if you want to look it up, they were very, very famous, they've disbanded now, but it was, it was actually, uh, it had some notoriety for quite a while. Uh, and I've, I've mentioned Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman would be the most famous, I suppose, atheist scholar. He does a lot of writing. He's published by Oxford, you know, so he's well known. People know who Bart Ehrman is. So I'm just giving you that to let you see this is what we have when we're talking about New Testament scholars. We have the range from conservative Christian, liberal atheist, you know, th and there's hundreds of scholars. We're not talking about 20 people or something, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of New Testament scholars. Okay, now, just in case you're thinking, because this is what I thought at first, just in case you're thinking, well, you know, the guys on this side who are Christians, they're, they're probably not going to get taken seriously. I did another visit this week. I went into uh, the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Does anybody know what the Royal Society of Edinburgh is? Yes, Susan will. Yeah, okay. It's her National Academy of Science, okay? It's the National Academy of Scotland for Science. The, these two guys are fellows, okay? Now, you, you don't get to be a fellow of the National Academy of Science for Scotland 
unless you're any good, okay? It just doesn't, you're not going to be in there, okay? You have to be invited by two other fellows, and then there's a process for you to get taken in, okay? So all the other fellows, a lot of them you'll have heard of, you know? So I'm just saying, it's, it's that kind of company. It's, it's like, um, Einstein was an honorary fellow, for instance, okay? You've got to be good, okay? You've got to know your stuff, okay? So don't think just because we're putting them on our end here, they're probably just like us and they're more kind of just good preachers, okay? These guys know their stuff when it comes to the New Testament, okay? You with me so far? You okay? Anybody need some more history or are you all right? Okay, good. Maybe another football thing. Okay, so we have three essentials of the gospel. So whenever we read the Bible and the gospel is mentioned, there's sometimes numerous more things in this, but these three things are always mentioned. And if you think of Romans 10, 9, okay, uh, uh, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Those three things that are in there, Jesus is deity, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, okay? So, so these are really the, the essential things that we need to be sure of, okay? We have to be sure of these things ourselves, okay? And of course, we receive the word by faith, and absolutely we should, okay? I'm not saying we don't receive by faith one little bit, but if we're going to be speaking to somebody who doesn't have faith, we have to have maybe something else in our locker to share with them, okay? Otherwise, Sydney, we're going to hit the post, aren't we, okay? And we want to get a goal here, okay? So I'm going to come back to Jesus' deity uh, just towards the end, okay? So we'll come back to that a bit later. But I want to give you uh, uh, five things here uh, which scholars all believe, okay, absolutely all of them. It doesn't matter if they're uh, uh, conservative, whether they're liberal, it doesn't matter whether they're Christian or atheist, it doesn't matter whether they're single, married, cheap dated, it doesn't matter, okay? They all believe these things. They all say it's a given. You can just take these for granted that we accept these things, okay? Um, so I'm just going to run through these. Now, these, these were listed by a, a, a scholar called uh, Gary Habermas, and I don't know if you remember, we were going to have him last year, but there was an illness around his party and all the rest of it, so he couldn't come, and hopefully we'll get him uh, to come again. But uh, he, he has compiled these, and, and he has checked them with all... He, he speaks to all these other scholars, and they're all saying, yes, absolutely, we unanimously accept these five things, okay? So the, the first of those is that Jesus uh, died by crucifixion. Um, uh, now... You, you might say, well, why isn't the first of them just that Jesus actually lived, okay? The reason for that is it is so obvious that Jesus lived. It is so obvious. I, I mean, the, the, it's not even a question for people who study these things. It is obvious that Jesus was lived. So if, if you, you know, listen to a debate with, say, Richard Dawkins and somebody, Richard Dawkins or, or people like him who are aggressive atheists will often say something like, well, I, I suppose we, we could just imagine that Jesus possibly lived, Okay. He doesn't actually believe that because if he does believe that, he wouldn't take any historical character seriously. He just wouldn't believe that any, anybody lived, basically, because the evidence for Jesus living is so strong, okay? So Jesus lived is a given by everybody, okay? And remember, when we're talking about these issues now, we're talking about people that know, you know, we're not, we're not just, say, reading a blog on the internet or, or looking up a website to see what some person says about it. These are all PhD, they're professors, they're people who teach this stuff, okay? So they know their stuff, okay? So when uh, we know that Jesus was crucified, everybody accepts that. And I've given you this, this little graphic here because this was really interesting to me. So th this is a really early manuscript, okay? Really early, and I've just popped there what it is, Luke 14, 27, and it's talking about the cross, okay? And so the bit that's circled there, do you see in the middle, right in the middle of it, there's a funny wee thing that actually looks like a cross. Do you see that? Okay, 
Um, and so what theologians, well, actually not theologians, it's, it's what the scholars are saying now. They're saying that they now think that this is probably the earliest art ever in Christendom, okay? The earliest, you know, the early people writing down about Jesus and about his crucifixion wanted to demonstrate it visually for people. And so this is a word that they've put the letters together to form a cross, okay? That's what that is. This, this, this was a word, this little, what looks like a head at the top and the cross arm, and the, that, that was one word for cross. And they've collected the letters together to turn it into a picture of a crucifixion. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Okay. Now, the reason this is important is, it's important we know that people didn't add this in afterwards. Okay, it wasn't like 300 years later, people start saying, we better start making sure people know that the cross is central here. Right from the start, Christians were saying, it's about the cross. Right from the start. And so when they were writing, you'll probably know this, but manuscripts were copied and copied and copied because they knew they wouldn't last. Okay, so people were writing them all the time. And so the manuscripts, there, there's thousands of these things, thousands, okay, and this is a really early one. I think this one was probably in the second century, so it's probably 100 years or something after the, the close of the New Testament, that kind of time. And, and th this, this is now coming up in several, they've noted, noted this in several uh, manuscripts. And I just thought that's a beautiful picture to us about how our forefathers in the Lord, early believers, saw Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, so, but this is evidence, okay? This is evidence that they accepted the resurrection. They took it in as part of what they ought to believe as early believers, okay? But that, that's just, uh, you know, a bit of a bonus for us, really, okay? Jesus died by crucifixion. It's just a given, okay? Now, because we don't have time tonight to go into these in detail, I'll give you all the references you want. If you want me to send you the list of who said what, I can give you all of those. Eileen will tell you, she wondered if I was going back to work over the last six weeks, because every time she saw me, I was tapping away on my computer. She says, what are you doing? Well, I'm just typing up some notes for 24. What are you doing? Oh, I'm listening to somebody talking about, you know, and so, so she's still wanting pizza on Saturday night, so I've got my work cut out to go and do some work again, okay? Um, so, but I'll give you the notes, okay? Because I've got, I've got lots of evidence that you can have that confirm this, okay? This is a given. Jesus died by crucifixion, okay? Now, I've worded this one carefully. The disciples believed they saw Jesus, okay? So, so skeptical scholars on this side won't say they definitely saw Jesus, but they'll say, but they believed they saw Jesus. We can take that. We think that's what they thought they saw. And, and so everybody accepts this, that the disciples believed they saw Jesus, okay? So uh, th th this becomes something that we should talk about a bit more, okay? Because there's different options then. What was it that they saw? You know, this is where the conversation then goes. So uh, the, the, these are the main things that people then say is the options. Okay, well, if they didn't see Jesus, what were the things that they did see? What, what were the potentials there, okay? So metaphor, you know, actually when it was written down, it was only a picture for us. Well, that's completely unsubstantiated. So nobody really believes that that's what was intended there. So we've, we've, we're able to just kind of cast that aside. Um, uh, hallucination. Now, th this was popular a couple of hundred years ago. People would say maybe they were just hallucinating. And then it all died a death and then it came back again. People start saying, well, maybe they were just hallucinating. The interesting thing about this is if you look up any medical uh, results for people who have hallucinated, it's only ever individuals. You don't get group hallucinations. You don't get group hallucinations. Now, who did Jesus appear to? Twelve. Okay, he appeared to the twelve, appeared to 500, he appeared to Peter. He, he was appearing to more than individuals. 
okay? So it doesn't make sense to say that they were hallucinating. It doesn't make any sense at all. That, that doesn't take us anywhere medically for a start, you know? So, and then we'd have to have all of them hallucinating at different times, okay? They're all seeing Jesus at different times. Are they all having a hallucination, the same hallucination? It doesn't make sense, okay? So, so we can discount that one. Medically, it just doesn't work. Um, uh, they were mistaken. Um, uh, I, I, I read somewhere some person uh, put forward a theory that actually Jesus had a twin brother that nobody knew about. <laughs> and they, they wheeled him out and, and said, here I am, you know. Um, I, th I think it just seems so unlikely. I mean, I think that would have gotten out somebody. Somebody there would have said, hang on a second, Jesus had a mole here. Or, you know, I think, I think there would have been reasons why somebody somewhere would have said that's not the case at all. Uh, so, so I just think it's very, very unlikely that they were just mistaken. They did actually believe they saw Jesus. I think that's fairly fair to say, okay? Um, intentional deception. Uh, that could go both ways. That could have been, okay, Disciples are saying Jesus is alive, and so uh, what did the Jews do? They went and took Jesus' body and took it away uh, and hid it somewhere, okay, so they couldn't produce Well, all they had to do was produce it then to say, well, he's not alive, we've got the body. Okay, that's all they had to do. It was no big difference. I'm not that clever, but I could figure that out, you know. Uh, so, so that doesn't make sense. also doesn't make sense for, for the disciples to do it, because why would they go on to die for their faith? seeing a dead body that was Jesus. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing about that that's logical. So I think we can, unless anybody's got a question on that one, I think we can probably dismiss that one. That doesn't make sense on any level at all. Um, spiritual resurrection only, um, or, or a wording around that. I want to use spiritual because it was out of space. Okay, but basically saying it was a resurrection, but it wasn't really a physical resurrection. Okay, now this one is only really people who would call themselves believers that say this because anybody who's a non-believer is looking at non-spiritual things anyway. Okay, um, that, that just doesn't make sense with the gospel. It doesn't make sense whatsoever. Acts 17, 31, 32, Mars Hill. Okay, what's, yeah. what's Paul doing? Yeah. What's Paul doing? He's preaching to people who don't believe in the yeah. resurrection, right? And when do they start laughing? They start scoffing him when he says, and I'm going to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's when they start laughing. And, and it doesn't make sense for them to see it any other way than you're telling us about a physical resurrection. Okay? That's the only thing that makes sense in that story. That's why they were laughing. That's why they were scoffing. And so that doesn't make sense even for a Christian to think that it was some kind of spiritual resurrection. And that probably comes from the fact that people are saying, well, look, Jesus' body was, you know, he could walk through things and all the rest of it. But the thing is, if we've got Jesus who is deity, Jesus who is God, who has a glorified body before he comes, yeah. where's the problem? Yeah. He's either God or he's not, right? right? So for Christians, I don't see why we should have that issue whatsoever. But that's one that's come up several times. And, and, and some of the scholars, you'll read this, if, if they're kind of what we would call moderate scholars, okay? One or two of them do go with this line. Okay, there was a resurrection, but it wasn't really a physical uh, resurrection. Okay, uh, Jesus survived the crucifixion. I'd heard this. Has anybody else heard this one? Jesus survived the crucifixion. Yeah, you heard that. Um, uh, it's difficult to know where to start with that because you've got all kinds of reasons why that can't be so. I mean, you're, you're starting to say, well, the Romans didn't know how to kill people, okay? Well, Romans were crucifying people all over the place, okay? So, so they knew when somebody was dead. They absolutely knew when somebody was dead. And there was a really interesting article that was given by um, a scholar, probably in 1830s, called David Strauss, 
And he, he, and he, funny thing was, he wasn't like us. He didn't believe in a physical resurrection. But he said, whatever else you think about Jesus, he didn't get off the cross alive. He says, whatever else you think, he couldn't have gotten off the cross alive. And he said, it's not just a medical issue. He said, it's actually a psychological issue because he's going to go to the disciples and he's going to say to them, look, I've risen. And they're going to say, really? Is this the glorified body that we're going to get? If he actually managed to get off the cross, it doesn't make sense. How are they going to go and spread the gospel on the basis of seeing his battered and bruised body and say, that's my resurrection body? They're not going to go with that. They're just not going to go with it. And so Strauss's critique on that was, whatever else you say, there's no way they would have sold out their lives for Jesus on the basis of that. It just would not have happened. And I agree with that. I don't think that would have happened at all. So we're, we're starting to lose options here. So Jesus bodily, and, and Arwen will know, a lot of you will know Romans 8, 11. You know, he who raised Christ from the dead will not also give life to your mortal bodies. It says specifically our physical bodies, okay? Uh, you need to know that Romans is accepted universally by... Uh, critical scholars even, they accept the words in Romans. Now, they're not saying Paul's right with everything when he's writing them, but they're just saying we absolutely accept Romans. So we can take Romans and say, absolutely, you've told us Romans is okay, okay? And he says we're going to have that same life in our physical bodies, okay? So Jesus' bodily resurrection, and of course, we've got all the evidence about what the disciples did after that, which we will get into shortly as well, um, telling us that this is the most logical if you want to speak to somebody about logic this is the most logical explanation it's the most logical explanation now i'm just going to take a minute in case there's questions because we've quickly covered stuff and we are going through stuff so quickly tonight does anybody want to ask or say or point anything out or we can we can do questions at the end i guess as well Giselle, yeah okay okay Let's move on. Okay, <clears throat> this is just a wee extra for you again, another little slide here. So in, in case you're wondering, uh, Mars Hill uh, is the Roman name for where Paul preached in Athens, okay? And, and this plaque here, this is today at Mars Hill. Th this is a plaque, this has Paul's sermon on it. You've been there, you'll know it then. Okay, this is Paul's sermon right there. Okay, right there in Mars Hill. And uh, uh, where he was speaking, it was, it was like the uh, the philosophical court in Athens. Really, it was yeah. you'll, you'll know this. It was all the all the people, all the thinkers, which was Athens. Really, were there, and and they, they, I think they could have judgments as well. I think it was almost like a, a kind of sense of being able to say yes and no and uh, and all the rest of it. So so th this this is a live site where Paul spoke. It's not a fake site. That the place is real. All the rest of it. I'm just giving you more kind of archaeological yeah. stuff to put in your pipe and smoke, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've gone through that. Okay, so the disciples believed they saw Jesus. We've gone through a list there. For me, the evidence says they actually did see Jesus because if we look at the other options that are out there, they just don't make sense. Okay, they don't fit the evidence, basically. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, they proclaimed this event early. I'm going to come back to this again, but just bear this in mind because what we were talking about, uh, the Scots history, okay? People talking 180 years after the event and all the rest of it. You're going to see something really remarkable about Scripture here. Okay, really remarkable about how early Scripture talks about the events that we're talking about. Okay, so just keep this in mind because we are going to come back to it shortly. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so another undisputed fact, the disciples' lives 
were changed, okay? The evidence is everywhere for this, absolutely everywhere. So <clears throat> not only did they leave home, not only did they uh, leave jobs, not only did they actually go overseas, um, a lot of them martyred for Jesus, okay? They died for Jesus. There's first century reports of, of the martyrdom of some of the apostles and second century for some of the other ones, okay? They gave up their lives for this message, okay? So there's no denying their lives were changed. And the one obviously to point out is Peter, who couldn't say squeak when he thought he was under pressure before Jesus died, could he? You know, he denied Jesus three times. You know, he couldn't say. And then afterwards, he's proclaiming the gospel. So what's happened? You know, something has happened that has changed the lives of the disciples. We're not going to go into it in detail simply because it's so well attested. Nobody, nobody says anything that that's not true. You know, it's, it's obvious. And so that... It is a fact that everybody accepts, okay? Um, but this is really interesting. This guy, Larry Hurtado, uh, he's Edinburgh, actually. He's just retired. He was Edinburgh's uh, professor of New Testament studies. Um, he's in the Royal Society of Edinburgh as well, okay? He, he's a top dog, okay, Larry Hurtado. And I'm just summarizing one of his articles to do with how believers saw Jesus early, okay? What they saw when they thought of Jesus. And he said that even the very early sources relating to the first believers demonstrate that they had a distinctive devotion. Okay, now distinctive, because remember in Jewish culture, all you worshiped was Yahweh, okay? You didn't have somebody else to worship, okay? They had a distinctive devotion uh, with God and Jesus, both central in belief and worship, okay? Now, this is important because it's early again. He's saying the evidence is this didn't, this didn't become some kind of um, later event that suddenly Christians thought, well, we'll start worshiping Jesus. This happened early, okay? So when we're looking for early evidence, okay, this is really good because this is what was happening. The, the early church, the early believers uh, saw Jesus as God, okay? And so we, we know we see that because we read, we read the New Testament as inspired by God. So we read that, but this is evidence outside that's telling us the same thing. And he also affirms that not only was it early, but uh, it was like an explosion, Okay, so suddenly the gospel was going like wildfire and it wasn't one little group there saying, well, we worship Jesus. Everybody was worshiping Jesus. Everybody was saying Jesus is God. Okay, so there was this kind of um, instantaneous sense that believers saw Jesus the way that we would see Jesus today. Okay, it wasn't an incremental thing. It didn't change over time. They accepted Jesus as Lord. You've got to think of the culture there. You've got to think where they were sitting. The setting didn't allow for that. Okay, the setting didn't allow for that. And yet they were worshiping Jesus. Okay. So, okay. So the disciples' lives were changed um, <clears throat> and James and Paul became believers. Okay. Who was James? Jesus. Jesus' brother. Okay. Okay. So you know it says twice in the Gospels that James was an unbeliever. Okay. When Jesus was alive, James didn't believe. Okay. He didn't believe. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's quite a big problem actually for Jesus maybe. <laughs> I'd have felt a bit hurt, <laughs> you know. So your brother says, actually, I don't think you are who you say you are, okay? So, but afterwards, he's pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Yeah. So what happened there? And Jesus showed himself to him afterwards. Now that could only have been him knowing his brother. Surely that could only have been of him knowing his brother. James became a changed man. Paul became a changed man. You know the story about Paul, okay? Paul was persecuting Christians left, like, right and center. He stood at... Stephen's getting stoned to death and Paul's there. Paul is a changed man, okay? We know about the road to Damascus and all the rest of it. Uh, he became a changed person and he went from persecutor, persecutor to believer, 
okay? And every scholar says, it's fine, we accept that, we accept these two people changed so dramatically that something must have happened, okay? Something must have happened for that to take place, okay? So James and Paul became believers. Okay, so just mentioning there, Mark uh, 3, John 7, if you want to look it up afterwards, it tells us about James. Um, <clears throat> so, so they had no vested interest, okay? They were unbelievers. It suited them that Jesus died. Well, certainly suited Paul if Jesus died, okay? James was maybe a bit more indifferent. He was his brother, so, you know. But, but they, they weren't egging it on for Jesus to be alive because it suited their cause. Let's put it that way, okay? And yet both converted, became church leaders, and were martyred for it, okay? Something's going on, isn't it? Something's going on for that to happen. And so there's a change in significant lives. Now, please hear this historically, okay? Because we see it scripturally which is great okay but when we're speaking to somebody else we need them to understand this is history speaking to them okay this is history this is attested history okay James is written about outside the gospels okay he's written about in non-christian sources okay so this is history speaking to them okay their lives changed okay because that will help them understand why our lives changed okay because we've had a relationship with Jesus now and we know what it's like okay so there we go. There, there's a couple more there. Okay, part two. Part two. So we're going to change slightly now. So do you remember I said apart from Scott's history, you had to be able to do something else? Count to 25. Okay, that's where we're going now. Okay, we're going to test your arithmetic, okay? Um, so we're gonna come back to the two things that I highlighted in red at the start. So they proclaimed this event early, okay? So, uh, you know, we were talking about Scott's history, we were talking about the difficulty of people actually putting things down at the time so that people could actually know what really happened. And so when people like historians or, or, or scholars want to see how authentic it could be, the timeline between the event and when it's first recorded is quite important, you know. So, for instance, if somebody writes about me a thousand years from now, people looking at that, historians will say, well, that guy probably didn't exist, okay? Whereas if they write about me tomorrow, okay, they're going to say, well, that's probably eyewitness testimony, you know. We know who Alan is because of this person. So, you know, that's an extreme example, but that's kind of how it works, okay? So the earlier that something is written down, it's recorded, historians, theologians, scholars, all these people can read it, the better, okay? So here we go. So th th this timeline is, I suppose, a kind of graph to say, what do people think is acceptable, okay? If you want to be sure or reasonably sure that something happened or a person existed or something like that, what do you need time-wise to have documentary evidence and more than one you know a couple of things saying the same thing okay so so if the event is here at zero okay the range of having stuff written down and attested really is 100 to 150 years okay so somebody who says I want to be really really sure we'll say 100 years somebody who's maybe a bit more flexible will say well as long as it's in the first 150 years there's a good chance it's probably something that's right okay so this is the kind of timeline that we have okay so William Wallace okay blind Harry where was he he was off the chart wasn't he he was 180 years or there so so you know that's why a lot of historians are saying well this isn't that great actually because he's miles away from the event he can't really know that William Wallace was eight foot six and you know you know you know so there's all that stuff really with that kind of thing okay so 
there, there's our timeline. So we're looking for evidence there. Okay, that's what we're looking for. Okay, so uh, who, who was Caesar when Jesus died? There's a clue. Okay, Caesar Tiberius. Okay, when Jesus died, Caesar Tiberius. Okay, um, the, the three best written evidences for Caesar Tiberius are between 80 and actually between 80 and 180 years. Okay, so, and there's only three of them. Okay, now, does any historian believe that Caesar Tiberius didn't exist? Well, of course not, you know, because they think there's enough Roman history overall to constitute that this will be right. Okay, so Caesar Tiberius, that's the evidence that we've got for him. Okay, okay, so there we go. So he's just sneaking under the 100, pushing on towards 150, but there's only three pieces of evidence there. Okay, here's where the Gospels are written. So, so this is, if, if we take the zero here as Jesus' death, okay? So this is about 30 AD, okay? 30 to 33 is, is the, the time frame, okay? Just nice and simple, there, there's the timeline there, okay? Here's Tiberius away over here, and here's when the Gospels are written, okay? Okay, we've got four Gospels, okay? 35 years after the event, well, 65 AD, which was Mark, going right through to John at 95, okay, which is 65 years after the 30, okay? Sorry, the arithmetic just got a bit more complicated there, didn't it? But basically, 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and 65, and all four are in there, okay? So, this is really good evidence, okay? This is really good evidence, actually. We've got four, and historians, of course, they're not looking at the Bible, one book. They're not looking at the New Testament, one book. They're, they're looking at individual documents here, okay, individual pieces of data, okay, four Gospels. Now, we see four Gospels, okay, historians and people who look into the text, textual critics, they see five, actually, okay, because what they say is Mark stands alone, uh, Mark has stuff that's not anywhere else, and it's only in Mark, Mark stands alone, John's the same, we kind of know that with John, don't we, John reads differently to the other three, um, but both uh, Matthew and Luke have uh, the same information, the same information, which they say probably came from another source, okay? So what, what people who are writing about this say, there's actually five sources here, not four, okay? But for our use, okay, it's four. We've got the four Gospels, okay? So, so there, there's five sources, but for us four, okay? In this very early window here, okay? So this is important, okay? This is really, really important because we have evidence that's early, okay? Um, now, we're just going to get a bit more interesting now, okay? So, just on the crucifixion, just on the crucifixion, okay, the, the, there's 22 documents just on the crucifixion, and not all of them Christian, okay? 22, okay? Now, look at the evidence. So, we're saying Caesar lived, okay? Caesar Tiberius lived. So, what are we going to say about the crucifixion, okay? 22 documents. They're not all in the Bible, okay? Um, you've heard it. If you've done the Alpha course, you know they talk about Josephus and people like that, okay? We've got historians, we've got magistrates, we've got lawyers, we've got people writing at that time talking about Jesus and his, his crucifixion, okay? So suddenly you're saying, well, this is a lot of evidence now, okay? So now you can see why I said earlier, nobody doubts the crucifixion, okay? It's so well attested, okay? There's loads and loads of data. And that's, that's just the crucifixion. That's not about Jesus, okay? That's just that one event, okay? There's 22 uh, different pieces of data for that. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, okay? Really, really interesting, okay? Because now we're going to talk about Paul. And um, 
the reason we're going to talk about Paul rather than the Gospels is Paul is another uh, thing that every scholar accepts, okay? They accept seven of the books without question, okay? Seven of them. They just say there's no question. Uh, he's the author. We trust him. Uh, he was a scholar. He, 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 was, uh, he was learned. Um, uh, he, he was seeing the right people. You know, they're just saying everything that he's saying in these seven books, we, we, we take them for granted. We're not saying he's right in this theology. We're not, you know, they're not saying everything that he says is correct to their way of thinking, but they will accept the evidence in these seven letters that are genuine, okay? So now, now what is it, 13 maybe? I can't remember how many Paul wrote. Was it 13? But anyway, seven, so half anyway that they're saying are fine, okay? So, um, so that's good, okay? Because Paul is writing here. Now, Paul's writing between 20 and 25, okay? His letters are coming out early, okay? Really, really early, and we're going to get into that just now. I hope you like facts and figures, because this excites me when I see this, okay? Paul writes early. So, I've, I've condensed our, 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 our graph now down to 25 years, okay? Because we're just dealing with Paul now, okay? So, going from the left here, so, Jesus dies at zero, okay? Two years in, Paul converts, okay? It could be one year or it could be three. Everybody says it's between one and three years, okay? Every scholar says it's between one and three years that Paul converts, okay? So this is Paul's conversion line right here, okay? Now, just stick with the red for a minute. Go to the other end, okay? Our written evidence that we're going to take from Paul is at 25 years. This is when he writes 1 Corinthians. Everybody accepts that. There's no question. There's no argument. He wrote 1 Corinthians 25 years after this event. Now, just think of what I was saying about this timeline, okay? Paul is writing within 25 years of the death of Jesus, okay? Now, in historical terms, that is really short, really. If you try and look up any evidence for any historical characters, you don't find this, okay? You just don't get this. And yet, Paul is writing this within 25 years, okay? So, and now remember, they trust Paul, Paul's good, okay, we know who he is, we trust that he's written these letters, and we accept he's telling the truth, okay, that's basically in a nutshell, okay, so he's writing this there, okay, so let's come back the way slightly now, see where I've got 21 years, uh, this is where vo Paul visits Corinth on his, uh, that'll be his first missionary journey, I think, Arwen, isn't it, he visits Corinth, um, 21 years, what, that Acts 18, I think, uh, he visits Corinth, okay, so Paul visits Corinth here, okay, so we've got Paul converts after two, Paul writes after 25, and he visits Corinth after 21. And the reason I wanted to give you that uh, right now is simply because we're going to read a little bit of 1 Corinthians, okay? And there's some really, really important stuff in 1 Corinthians that it's good for us to know and understand, okay, when we're talking about apologetics. Okay, so we go to verse 3. So what we're reading was written 25 years after Jesus, okay? After Jesus died and rose. This is what we're reading right now, okay? So verse 3 says, For what I received, I passed on to you, okay? So when did he pass it on to them? Chapter? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 15. Yeah. Okay. We're reading at 25, okay? He visits them at 21, and he's writing to them, okay? So he's speaking to them, okay? For what I received, I passed on to you. When did he pass it on to them? 21. At 21, okay? So he's talking about here. He's talking about this time right here when he was there, okay? So he's writing four years later to them and reminding them, okay? Okay? And then he says, 
as of first importance. Well, that's what we're seeing tonight, isn't it? The gospel is the thing. We can talk about all the other issues that we want, but the gospel is the important thing, the central thing, okay? Okay, and here we go again, that Christ, that Christ, Messiah, Lord, okay, the deity of God, it's in there, that Christ died for our sins, so he died, the other central thing that we need to know, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised, the other element that we need to have in there, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, just pausing there for a moment, okay, that this is like a creed, okay, this little thing here, that Christ died, he was buried, and on the third day he was raised. Oral tradition was a big thing at the time. We, we, we don't know about it now because we've got, you know, we, we've got emails and tech. You know, we, we don't need oral tradition. We don't need to be just speaking things to each other. They said things to each other and repeated them so that they would remember them, okay? They couldn't just pop an email to Arwen and say, just remind me of what it was you said on Sunday, okay? So they're speaking stuff over and over and over. Romans 10, 9 is another one. And you can hear it now when you think about it. It's almost kind of got a tune to it, isn't it? In fact, we could sing it. <laughs> no, we won't. Okay. You know, it's almost got a tune to it. And so this is a creed. This is something that they were repeating to each other so that they understood and kept it in their hearts, the centrality of the gospel. Okay. That Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised. Okay. Now, he goes on, and that he appeared to Cephas. Well, Cephas is Peter, as we know. It's just the different Aramaic or Greek, depending on what you're reading. And then to the 12, and after that, he appeared to more than 500. So he is, he's almost saying to them here, he's almost saying, if you don't believe me, here's the people to write to. Just go and check it out, okay? Just go and ask them. I'm giving you the names, okay? Just go and check it out. And he, he goes on to say, and some of them are still alive, okay? He's letting them know that this isn't a hidden mystery now I'm giving you, okay? It's out there okay so he's writing to the people in Corinth and telling them this okay so we'll just pause there because time's going to run away from us I just want to get to this next bit now the blue bit okay so we've got two 25 and 21 and then we've got five here okay five okay so this is Paul visiting Jerusalem now okay uh, Arwen I keep looking to you because I know you'll keep me right if I get this wrong okay <laughs> Paul, Paul's visiting Jerusalem now if you can flip over quickly we'll go to Galatians okay Okay, Galatians is another book. Scholars and everybody says, absolutely no problem. Paul said this. You're absolutely fine to go with this. Okay, so Galatians 1. Let's go down to verse 17. Okay. Now, if you read Galatians, you know Galatians is about the gospel, really. Okay, that's what Galatians is about. And, and here he's talking about his, his experience of salvation, his conversion. And then he says in verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted. Okay, so he gets converted here between one and three years, okay? And then he says, after three years. Okay, when's he in Jerusalem? He's in Jerusalem. Who's he talking to? He's talking to eyewitnesses, remember? He's talking, at five years, he's talking to people who were at zero, okay? So we're thinking 25 years is really good, okay? What we have now, this is accepted, okay? Nobody's arguing that Paul's telling lies here, okay? He's saying, I went up and I saw Peter, okay? And who else did he say? James, okay? So he's seen Peter and James at five years, eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses right here, okay? Um, 
Now, th this is really important because if you want testimony and if you want it to stick, the best thing you've got is an eyewitness, surely. It's an eyewitness, right? Okay. Um, is it better to have an eyewitness that you're saying, well, you know, but he's a Christian, so, you know. Or, or is it better to have somebody 300 years later say, well, I didn't see it, but this is what I think. I mean, you still take the eyewitness, wouldn't you? So, so he's got the eyewitnesses right here. He's got Peter and he's got James, okay? Now, it's really, really important that we just quickly look at Galatians 2 as well, because he then goes on to tell us about another visit that he makes to Jerusalem. So just flip into Galatians 2 quickly. Yeah. Somebody's ahead of us already. Okay, no, it's good. Okay. So to summarize what my helper was saying there, he goes back up again after 14 years. Okay. Yeah. Now, Paul, Paul's a Scot. He's been really careful to help us here. He's been really careful. So he's back up somewhere around 18 or 19. Okay. He's somewhere up there. He's going back up there. And we don't have time to get into it tonight, but why is he going up to see them again? Because he tells us, He's making sure he's not running the race in vain. He's checking his fact. Are we preaching the same gospel? He wants to be sure that we're getting the gospel. Isn't that amazing? So Paul is a careful, careful scholar. He wants this to be right, okay? So we can trust Paul. We can trust Paul very early, telling us what he's telling us because he's careful. Who else does he see in Galatians 2? There's one other person there. Barnabas. Well, he had Barnabas with him, didn't he? Yeah, he saw John, if you go down a bit there. John. He saw John. Who is John? Yeah, that Jesus loved. Okay. So here you've got the great leaders in the church. Okay, you've got Paul, you've got Peter, you've got James, you've got John. Isn't that wonderful? They're together sharing on the gospel. Okay. And, and I think Paul, Paul says, they didn't add anything to me. No. Okay. We're sharing the same gospel. You'll get it from me and you'll get it from them. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is what he's telling them. And this is all early, okay? This is all early. And so we're going right back to two years and then we're going back to zero because the eyewitnesses were there. And you can read, you know, I mentioned Bart Ehrman, who's a critical scholar, okay? Critical, he's an athe agnostic atheist, okay? He has no problem saying all of this stuff, all of this oral stuff comes in right between two and zero. Okay, he says, I have no problem with that. I accept that completely. Okay, right back to the edge of zero. We don't get that in history. Okay, we don't get that kind of testimony. That's how strong our evidence is for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. We have eyewitnesses. How do we know that they were telling the truth? We, we've got sources that confirm that Paul died for his faith. Uh, we've got a second century source that John died for his faith. And we've got first century sources that Peter and James died for their faith. Mm -hmm. Peter the denier, James the unbeliever, mm -hmm. saying, Jesus, I love you so much, I'm prepared to die for you. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. And this comes right back here. Okay, that's the evidence that we've got for Jesus. That's the evidence. But can I point out something? You're really telling half the story. We don't have time to tell the whole story, what about though. about the Old Testament? The Jews believe the Old Testament. Yes. They knew it better than we do. Yep. They knew the Psalms. Yep. And they knew the prophets. Yep. The prophets prophesied about Jesus, yep. the Messiah. Yep. And they all thought he was coming. Yep. But when he came, they didn't recognize That's him. That's right. Because yeah. he was yeah. not of Sharon. Yeah. He, he was not of the uh, mm -hmm. uh, priestly clan. And yeah. then, uh, he lived in Nazareth, miles mm -hmm. away up in the hills. No yeah. one believed anything there. Mm 
that's right. And he ever good came out of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. That's right. And he hadn't been trained in Jerusalem by Gamaliel or anything. That's right. Yeah. So they couldn't believe that he was the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus himself said, "I've fulfilled the prophecies in mm -hmm. the Old Testament and the right. Psalms." That's right. That's right. And I'm going to touch on that very briefly, really briefly, because we're short on time, Bill. But I, I've got a, just a little comment to make on that. Okay. So there we are. I, I'm, I'm sorry I brought this up very late, but that's me condensing it again, just so you get these timelines there. But we'll move on because we've covered that now. Okay. And there's the thing about the eyewitnesses. So he's going there, he's speaking to them. And of course, it's taking everything right back to zero again. Okay. We're getting the information we need right at the start. Okay. Okay. So just picking up on uh, Bill's point, I'm sorry, we're, we're running out of time. So I'm going to speed on now. Okay. Jesus is deity. Okay. Um, I, I don't know why this, this happens, but there, there's always been this kind of controversy. Did Jesus actually say he was God, the Son of God? You know, it, you know, it, it's out there for some reason. And uh, just going back to um, <clears throat> Gary Habermas again, he says this is probably the strongest scripture we can use to confirm why Jesus said he was God. And this will answer part of Bill's point as well. Okay, so... <clears throat> So you remember the story, Jesus brought before the high priest and it's almost like he is saying to Jesus, tell me, tell me man to man, okay, are you, and of course he doesn't say God, he's the son of the blessed one, doesn't he? There's this kind of thing of not saying God's name. Are you the son of the blessed one? Okay, so he says this here and Jesus says, I am. And then he goes on to say this, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. Um, it wasn't because Jesus said, I am, was it? It wasn't because of that. It's because the high priest knew what the scripture said in Daniel, mm -hmm. son of man, cloud. Jesus was saying to him in the way that he would hear it, okay, yes, mm -hmm. yes, this is me. Yeah. This is me, yeah. okay. Tore his clothes, that, that's the kind of sign of blasphemy, mm -hmm. tore his clothes, and, and uh, Jesus gave him what he wanted. You know, Jesus confirmed right there in the hearing of a first century Jewish year that he is God. Okay, it's clear. It's so clear that that's what he was saying to him. And so uh, th there's such a, uh, such a clarity about that moment there. Such a clarity that Jesus is telling us who he is. Such a clarity. And it's extra clear when we know the way that we were to interpret this from a scholarly point of view. Okay, so just to be really brief again. Um, the, the way critical scholars look at words that Jesus says, they say, we can't accept them if he says something that was ascribed to him somewhere else. So from Jewish tradition or something. Not, so if the Jews would say that's Jesus, they would say, no, we, we, that, that's him borrowing somebody else talking about him. So we're not taking that. Not, nor can we take it if it's something that looks like it's come back from the church, from the Christians. And Jesus is saying something. They would say, well, somebody's just written that into the text then. You know, somebody's written that in and put it in there to say Jesus said this, okay? Um, <clears throat> son of man. Son of, the Jews would never have called Jesus the son of man, okay? So it passes that test right away. There's no way the Jewish high priest would say Jesus is the son of man, okay? So it passes that test right away. Uh, how do we know the church didn't ascribe that saying to Jesus? Look through the epistles. It's nowhere. It's never met. It was Jesus's phrase for himself. It's in all the gospels and the fifth book we don't know about. Okay, the five sources that they use to say this is the gospel's makeup. The son of man is in all of them. Okay, but it's not in any of the epistles. It's in Acts. Stephen getting stoned, isn't it? You see the son of man. He repeats the same thing. That's the extension of the gospel of Luke, of course, as we know. 
It's, it's not an epistle. So the early church weren't calling him the son of man. This is Jesus affirming himself, okay? That's a critical test for scholars, okay? That this is Jesus's own words about himself, okay? So that, that's just to give you a bit of background why this is such an authentic scripture because they won't argue the point on it. They'll say, Jesus said that, I'm the son of man because he says it through all, all, of the, uh, all of the gospels and he says it specifically here to high priest, okay? It's the red rag to the bull time, isn't it? That's what that is right there, okay? So, um, I feel like I'm really rushing now because I'm aware of time. Uh, so we don't have a lot of time to talk about the work of Jesus now, okay? I just want to say one thing and then we'll, we'll be out of the time, okay? Miracles, okay? Miracles are obviously something that we believe, okay? We accept Jesus performs miracles. But, but uh, I had to put a Greek word in because... Uh, uh, Jaziel used about 40 Greek words the last time and I felt I was lacking somewhat if I didn't, okay? Uh, so the Greek word for miracle that's used in the New Testament is uh, simeon, okay? Sign, okay? It's a sign. It's a pointing to something, okay? And the best way that this kind of clarifies Jesus and his deity is when we read um, Mark 2, 5 to 7, okay? So do you remember this verse, Okay. So Jesus said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven, okay? So what was the response to that? You can't do that. You know, only God can do that. So what does he say? Okay, so I'll do the other thing. I'll do the miracle so you see that I'm God, okay? It was a sign, okay? The miracle was a sign as to who he was, okay? So the teachers of the law were saying, you can't talk like that. That's blasphemy. Only God uh, can forgive sins, okay? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. Okay, and we know the story after that. Okay, and there's the story then. Okay, Son of Man does a miracle to show that he's God by forgiving sins. Okay. Okay, so just to summarize. Okay, this has been so quick. Okay, but I hope you get the picture. Okay, the historical evidence, if you need to help somebody understand it, the historical evidence for Jesus is as sure as you're going to get for anybody, more so, okay, more so, okay, it's completely sure, and I've given you the five points that the critics will accept, okay, they'll accept it, and Jesus did claim to be deity, okay. Okay, I don't have a lot more to say because we're out of time, but just an interesting fact um, I was talking about manuscripts before, okay? We're not talking about 20 or 30 here, okay? There are 6,000 Greek manuscripts. I think it's something like 9,000, um, possibly Aramaic ones actually, and a whole stack of other smaller, smaller groups of other uh, languages, okay? There are thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts and these date right back and these are early okay first century copies that we have in fact some of them in the UK and museums and libraries and stuff like that really really early and the great thing about having early copies is that people can look to see what we have today and what we had then and see that it matches up see that people aren't just making it up as they go along you know to suit the story okay so I'm just telling you that because there's nothing like that you don't have manuscripts like this for anybody else you just don't have them. They're written early, not 300 years before and all the rest of it. They're written early and they tell the same story. Okay, Jesus is Lord. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to stop there, Jazeera. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Revival Ready, a ministry of Edinburgh Elam Church. 
You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Edinburgh Elam.